Welcome to episode 14 of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with Canadian architect Ian Andrew. One of my favorite golf books is Donald Ross's Golf Has Never Failed Me, a short, almost stream-of-consciousness compendium of wise snippets, including philosophical topics like diagonal hazards and more urbane hot takes like I don't care much for rollers. Maybe it's because of my short attention span, but a few years ago, okay, it was more like 10 years ago if you insist on aging me, I started reading what might be the internet-era equivalent of Ross's book, a blog written by Canadian architect Ian Andrew, who also mastered the art of short-form, informative golf opinions. Over about a three-year period, Andrew published, I'm guessing, over 400 posts on golf course architecture, including a multi-part primer on the history of golf design and his ranking of the 25 greatest architects of all time. He worked a number of years for architect Doug Carrick before striking out on his own in 2006 to pursue a more minimalist, golden age-inspired approach to architecture. With new course construction coming largely to a standstill, he's yet to have the opportunity to really show what he's capable of on a new site. In the meantime, he's become one of the most highly regarded and knowledgeable restoration specialists in both Canada and the United States. He's worked on a number of fellow Canadian master Stanley Thompson's greatest courses, including St. George's and Cape Breton Highland Links, along with a list of other classic-era notables. As much as his design work, however, Andrew is known as one of the business's deepest intellectuals and critics, and a free thinker when it comes to course design. Getting Ian on the podcast and not talking about the state of modern architecture, current trends, and his ideas on ideal design would be a missed opportunity. So that's what we did. It got a little philosophical, which I enjoyed, and we went down some fairly analytical pathways while discussing the current and future state of affairs. If you like the more esoteric side of golf design, you'll probably like this talk. So here it is, my conversation with Ian Andrew. So first, I've got to ask, how's your basement project coming? <laughs> uh, pretty good. It's uh, I wouldn't say it's halfway, but uh, I'm getting really close to halfway. It's it's been an interesting month. Is it just? Are you just like uh, adding a bedroom or building out space? What do you? What do you? What is going one, on there? One bathroom. Uh, what it is is we used to have four rooms down there, and uh, it's the one place that had been heavily renovated in the house, and so. What I was trying to do is undo all the renovations. We'd actually done the other side of the house, like the other side of the basement, and, and done a best way I can describe it is like a library and an entertainment room. Uh-huh. And so the whole thing was done and completed. And about two weeks later, I was walking down the stairs through uh, it, it was a mess. And I just kind of stood there and went, This is pathetic. <laughs> and I decided that we needed to do the other side. And the other thing is, all the light was cut off, the windows were hidden inside storage rooms. So it was just, it was a dark space and it was kind of depressing to walk through it to a really nice room. It was all completely done. So I realized I had eight weeks of no work. So, which is pretty typical for this time of year. I just decided that, ah, oh, the hell with it. This is what I'm going to do and I'll see how far I get. Right. And I got a bit of enjoyed it, but I'm in the drywall stage and I can't stand the drywall stage. So, uh, so are you, are you a pretty handy guy around the house? Is this something that you're capable of pulling off? Yeah, I've done, um, when I was a teenager, um, or not late, uh, sorry, I guess I was, I used to do work around my my dad's, but when I was in my early 20s, I helped a friend rebuild a house, and then since then, I, I, I did one house that we owned, and like everything, including roofing it and the whole bit, and then um, 
I've done renovations at other people's places uh, with them. So I'm handy enough. I can I can I can even build cabinets and do all that sort of stuff. I can do plumbing. I didn't do the plumbing here though because it was all at the bottom of the house and that tends in an old house to hold water. And I was smart enough to pay somebody else to go through the headache of trying to get the the lines clear enough to actually be able to solder them. But I can do electrical. I, I won't touch a box, but I can I can change around. And I even know how to calculate load and everything else for electricity. So. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm handy. Color me I'm impressed. Just, I'm just not good at drywall. Uh, it's funny. The, it's the mudding and taping. It just requires a little bit too much patience. And uh, it seems to be the one thing because I don't like doing it. I don't have the patience for it. Uh-huh. Are you are you pretty impatient generally? No, but uh, I'm, I can be impatient at the odds. If there are odds and ends of things that I don't like doing, I can be impatient with those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed because I would hire somebody to change light bulbs if I could. I, I outsource everything. <laughs> I'm pathetic. Well, where I'm good is, and this is why when we do renovations, we've all got our specialties when we're doing stuff. Uh, we did uh, a friend of um, one weekend, we did his, almost his entire house windows. I always do the beginning because if I find something I don't like, I just I will keep going until I find something I do like, and then I'll build it back out so they can. So he had problems with um, some moisture. So by the time the whole thing was done, we'd sent somebody off to get a compound to do the, the but I'd actually strip back the wall. And, and then by the time we left the second day, the whole wall and everything was put back together. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the person who will not leave something behind. So they always have me lead. <laughs> And I'm good at framing it to leave somebody else, so it's easy to do from them yeah. for for them to do forward. So, yeah. but that's sort of typically how we do stuff. We've got one guy who he's the most meticulous carpenter I've ever met in my entire life. Um, so that's one of our group. So we always get him to do the finishing. But you can't. It, he's painful. We just let him do his thing and don't talk to him. And he doesn't want to talk to us when he's doing it. Yeah, he just gets. Even though we're all, the, all the, we're all high school friends too. He uh, runs a mutual fund. Um, wing for a big insurance company so as he says uh, this is my happy place he goes he goes away when he gets into the woodworking he just kind of floats off and he does mind. he's funny yeah. he just disappears in this he won't talk to us um we just make sure he's got what he needs and he we don't talk to him he doesn't talk to us yeah but does his he... work is pure it's just beautiful yeah, I, I respect people who who can work with wood and are great carpenters like that. We had our we built a my wife and I and my family built a new house a couple of years ago, and the guy that built it was basically a carpenter. And just the finishes in our house cool. are really beautiful, and that's why we hired him is so we could get that kind of craftsmanship that you wouldn't get in a like a spec house. And um, I just just really it's a really amazing thing to be good at. Well, we live in a, a century house, and our main floor is arts and crafts. Oh wow! So yeah. you go around. I go around, and the we we've restored a couple of the windows, but they're. Um, but I remember the guy who came in to look at them just went, "You know why he did that?" And we went because they look cool, and he goes, "No, because he can." Yeah. He right. said we've got um, our windows break into triangles, and and so the window above me in my office here. The upper window has 15 squares over uh, an area of uh, three by two. That's to imagine the work it took to build that. Yeah, I'm trying to envision that. That's it's beautiful. Like I mean, our my office windows are beautiful, but he's even got 
bigger rectangles and smaller rectangles in the side panes. So there's seven. So think about it, a window, he's working with odd numbers. So it sort of speaks volumes, but we've got a number of windows in here where it's triangles. All the windows are triangles. So the one dead opposite me in the dining room I can look at is actually six, six uh, triangles, and, and they're not even all the same size. It's kind of like that. Like, it's really beautiful work. Yeah. Like, people have been in to see our uh, look at a few things in our house because we've got a few odds and ends that are unusual, and we're a historically listed house in the city. But everybody always stops at the windows. And I always tell them they're not even looking at the thing that's the most unique to the house. All our, um, our windows, the bottom of the windows, have um, limestone blocks. Mm-hmm. And when you look at them, they're all full of uh, fossils. You have to see it to believe it. Like our, like our, the, all our window sills are full of fossils huh. because of the time when they were cut and obviously where they were cutting them. Yeah, I guess so if they're if they're a hundred years old, they you know they were just like, oh, there's fossils in here. Let's use it nowadays. You know, you'd be a historic preservation site or something. Yeah. So, but when you go around it after a little while, you just kind of go, holy crap. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, it, that kind of level of detail and, and craftsmanship is, is rare to find executed now. It's kind of like golf courses, you know, golf courses that yeah. were built 100 years ago. It's, that's what really I, I, makes them what they are. Although I will say the way they're building the courses now is the way they were building them in the past. So I think the craftsmanship has showed up again. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when you look at um, uh, Tom, Bill, Gill, you look at the way they're doing things and and the way they're taking on things, while they're using mini excavators instead of horse-drawn scrapers, you're looking at the same idea. And there's a lot of hand work out with a rake. It, it, it's amazing how much work is now done with a rake all over again. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good jumping in point here. And I actually was going to get to this pretty soon. And I want to bounce this off you and get your opinion on it. This concept that we're in the second golden age of architecture, it's been around for quite a while, probably, you know, 10 years maybe. And it, But it seems to me this meme has really been taking a more formalized uh, form, I guess, in the last, you know, very much more recently. It's, you, I hear it a lot more than, I, than it, I ever have before. And I just wonder if that's an accurate description and not to get too caught up in terminology and definitions but to me a, a golden age would denote sort of a, a, a flowering of new ideas and an expression of new forms and I'm not sure that we're in that it's what what it seems to me is more like a neoclassical era where we're sort of rein, reinterpreting a, a lot of things from the past but we're really not adding anything um, what where do you stand on this am i mistaken or or should we you know be reclassifying this term for the sake of accuracy i, I like the phrase you used in uh, neoclassical uh i i agree with that actually the um i i do think it, it's an it's a second great era but it, uh, the the era is being led by the leading architects of our time, there's not got the depth that the golden age had. So I've always had an issue with that, that um, what I think we're lacking is the diversity and the, as you said, the expansion of ideas. I don't think that's taking place. I think everything that we're seeing is very narrow. But your neoclassicism um, uh, really works for me as an idea, as a way of defining the age. It's sort of rediscovering some really fantastic ideas of the past that work exceptionally well and and bringing them back again uh, within modern 
construction and construction techniques and 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 with within the current stage of the game. So yes, I, I like your definition better than the definition that we're getting. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a, so much of this impression that we're getting this second golden age is is based around. Well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but a lot of it's based around maybe. 20 golf courses that have been built around the world in the last 15, 18 years that are built on these sandy, dunesy, beautiful sites. And we're taking this small sample and extrapolating out to a such a large definition of an entire era. I guess you could roll in the restoration movement with that as well. But again, that's really just unearthing old forms. So I'm just, I just have a little bit of a hard time with this notion, I guess. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think it's also rankings-based. I think that so many courses over a very short period of time have showed up on the current rankings. And I think it's wanting to embrace the amount of high-quality work, uh, compare it to another similar period, and call it the same thing. And as I said, I, Mm I do admire a lot. There's a lot of great work, but there's a lot of similarities in the approach and in the style uh, not only within the individual architect's work, but also within the collective. And so I, I do find, if I have a criticism of this movement going on right now, I find it narrow. And if I have a uh, sort of a high compliment to the work that went on through the 20s and 30s, it, it was broad and deep and diverse. And my frustration right now with where we are is the the work is pretty exceptional at times, but the other end of it is, I'm finding as a, as a player and as a historian, um, I'm, I'm finding I'm lacking the depth to make me feel really good about it. In fact, I'm really, I keep saying to everybody, I'm actually excited to see somebody do something completely different. Even if it's something I'm not crazy about, I'd rather see somebody step out than, than see more of the same. And my, my one fear is a lot of the future uh, is working for a small group and are probably going to lead things forward. And, and unfortunately, unless there's some real stepping away from those ideas, it's it's more of the same. And at a certain point, no matter how good a, a style or, or a movement is, uh, once you get too much of it, it 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 collectively loses the interest that it once had when it was new, fresh, and um, there were fewer examples. A good way of putting it is, the more some of these leading architects do the less interesting the individual projects become when you've seen the the ideas used before because there is a, a basic approach um there is some patterns to the ideas that they use and the more work they build the more difficult it becomes to surprise us and when, once they stop surprising us or impressing us then we stop feeling the same way about the work when people first saw sand hills they were blown away but if you go through the entire body of Core and Crenshaw's work, you're going to see some repetitions and some, some repeated ideas. And it doesn't mean that the work is not exceptional or excellent. It just means that after a while, you recognize the, the patterns and you recognize the approach and you become familiar with it and it loses its impact. And the one thing I think we're missing is we're missing the architects who are doing something different who will push the buttons of those leading architects to try something different, to push in a different way. I think what we're missing is um, 
uh, I, I, I happen to be a huge Picasso fan. What you're missing is somebody to, who catches the artist's eye or artist's ear with ideas and takes them in a new direction and, and allows them to expand their own repertoire. We're missing the push for the leading guys to change, to, to try something, to push a little bit more. It feels all a little too similar, a little too... Um, uh, we know where they're going to go, and I, I, the sites are delivering us some really exceptional things, but I, I think their art needs a, a nudge, and I think the nudge comes from competition, and I think the lack of competition leads us to the same ideas. Yeah, it's almost like the the sites that we're talking about, you know, the Barn Boogles and the Cabots and the Stream Songs and the Sand Valleys and whatnot, they're at once so full of potential, but if you're a minimalist, designer and you and your mode of operation is to read and react off the land those sites i i'm gonna get crucified for saying this but there's a homogeneity to those sites and if you're not doing anything creatively to alter that and you're just reading the land over the course of time like what exactly what you're saying it's almost like these sites can lead to a certain amount of sameness and that's not a saying they're not all thrilling to play because they think they play differently. But the, but as a genre, there's almost no room for diversity in, in the artistic application of architecture. Uh, yeah, I think what's really important is is because what people will struggle with, they'll just say it's being critical of the art form. And what's really important is I do think Almost every project I've gone to, I, I've really enjoyed. I, I think they've made some wonderful choices, and I think the work individually stands up very well. The struggle I've got is that you're now becoming more and more dependent upon the site to, to deliver the surprise. And what I would love to nudge these guys to do is to... When you've got a when you've got a great piece of ground, you get great holes. But when you don't have a great piece of ground, it tends to fall to some very similar ideas. And what I'd love to nudge them to do is to try to get a little bit further out of their wheelhouse. But the other end of it is stylistically or thematically or visually, it's starting to really as a mass come together into one in too much for me. I, I think, yes, you react to your site, but I also think they're delivering versions of the same thing. And I think what made a, a bigger mess for that was when, you know, Fazio did pronghorn and, and um, a, a number of architects or a, a number of people who've worked with them started doing versions of it. I, I just think you end up with, um, you end up with weaker versions because they don't have the structure underneath that the, these leading architects are capable of delivering. But the problem is you keep seeing the same um, visual patterns and, and, and aesthetics, and it just gets, it continues to flow over and over, and I'm starting to see it show up in renovations. And after a while, even as much as I like it, after a while, you just kind of grow sick of it. And, it, and what it is is, it, it's the lack of variety in work um, in general terms right now that's a struggle. I mean, it, it, it feels like it, to a small degree, if it doesn't either follow the pattern of, of Rainer or, or, or the pattern of 
let's call it uh, Prairie Dunes aesthetic. There isn't a lot of other things going on. There's there's nobody building Tillinghouse bunkers. It just feels like we seem to be locked into a very, very tight little window of, of ideas at the moment. And and I guess what I'm wishing for sort of as a, as a lover of the art, because I always remove myself um, competitively from any of this, because I don't think I am competitive within within this environment. But as a lover of the art, I would just like to see something different, a little bit more, you know, follow through in these these uh, golden age ideas. But let's take a different version of the golden age and let's go with it. Um, we just it feels like we're we're falling into a couple of different themes. And and as I said, I'm 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 struggling without the depth. Uh, go back for a second. You mentioned Fazio and Pronghorn. What exactly do you mean by that? What what can we uh, dis- distill well, from that anal- or that particular example? Um, the idea of there was definitely a period where uh, uh, Chambers Bay was a great example, where essentially I, I just believe there were um, a, a number of the modern architects borrowed the aesthetic of the minimalists, trying to sort of uh, broaden their appeal to developers. Right. And I, I just think, um, you know, some of the work's a little more interesting looking, but the, but the problem with it is it had the modern ideal sitting underneath it with the minimalist skin stuck over the top of it. And, and it, it was interesting to see what was done, but what happened was there was a big run of it for a while. And it just... Again, it just it, it kind of littered the landscape with a, a very similar aesthetic, and and it, to me, it didn't add to the sort of the depth and the quality. I'd rather people just, if they believe in something, do what you believe in, um, follow it through, see it through. Maybe it's not the style of the time, but the way we get great work is by somebody with complete conviction on philosophically what they want to do and what they want to see, seeing it to an end. And that's how we get our, our greatest work. But I, I feel like right now, to become popular, and particularly to be um, to make it to Golf Club Atlas, to sort of be kind of blunt or short uh, about the idea, to, to make it to that, um, that group, the, the people who are super into architecture, it feels like um, people are almost working within a style to try and gather the attention. And, and I just kind of wish that that architecture had a little bit more um, strength to go in some different directions, hard as hell, and, and see things through. And, they, and maybe they don't turn out to be as good, but I do think the variety will lead to a lot more uh, interesting um, outcomes in golf architecture, because if you, if somebody doesn't point out boldly in another direction, it doesn't move the needle along. Everything just incrementally follows the same path, and you're only going to get incremental movements. You need the outlier to sort of draw a big change or a, a, an advance or a um, to people to sort of reconsider. And I, I, I'm, I'm pining for the outlier. Yeah, exactly. I call that, the, the one thing I call that the Pacific Dunes effect, because that's to me when I really started to notice that architectural firms, you know, this was back before 2008, but architectural firms were seeing the first accessible version of that uh, Sand Hills look, which was Pacific Dunes, and applying that 
aesthetic over, like you said, over their their own kind of uh, standardized house form of architecture. But just thinking that those kind of blowout McKinsey style bunkers could could get them on the front pages of the magazines, and then everybody was just kind of drifting off of that for a little while. But but you you write about the you know the the history and the trajectory of art is always a new vanguard coming in and kind of overthrowing the established form. And that's what made Sandhills and Pacific Dunes, you know, at the early end of that so radical is because no, nobody had built a golf course like that, at least in the United States for, for decades. And now it's like, okay, now we've played this look, we've played this concept out and what's next. What do you think? What, what's even possible uh, out there? (laughs) What's, what's going to, gain traction i you know like it's all you know like i when, when you say like n- new forms of architecture i think of mike strands was starting to go there although he might have been starting to come back to something a little slightly more conventional uh jim ang is polar a polarizing figure uh, what what do you see that's even possible as a the next step that could be carried through well the the I mean, if if you want to take um, Golden Age, because it is, it got to remember that's the like the million dollar question. If you had the answer, you would go in that place and then you would succeed, right? But it's not that simple. But um, on a Golden Age perspective, I I, I do think um, uh, it's funny. It's been called minimalism, but I actually think the movement is very is not minimalistic. I think. Uh, it's actually fairly dramatic aesthetically. Um, so I always thought it was mislabeled, but I do think, um, you know, I, I look at what David did out at um, Sand Valley, and to me that's maximalism. I mean, it's taking sort of the uh, the current movement to its extremes, and, right. and to me it doesn't, it, it just, it doesn't work for me personally. I just think there's a certain point once you get to a certain width that it strategically, it it starts to lose interest because it's not really demanding anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And and I do believe that part of the game is, um, I'm definitely a believer in width, but I think at a certain point, part of the game is earning um, your achievements. Right. And so I'm, I, I, I do believe that once you get beyond, so I, I don't think it, I don't think it's on that end. And I think Pete Dye's proved that once you go to a certain point, it just all, becomes for me Pete Dye became messy the bigger he gets the messier he got I think it's actually the other way around I think it's from land use it's also from uh, intimacy I think we've lost some of the intimacy and some of the design work I think coming back to something with that's a little bit smaller a little bit narrower actually would be a really good reaction to what's going on uh, maybe a little less uh, reliance on the visuals of bunkering and just being a little bit more uh, honest or straightforward with the architecture or a little bit more clean. Um, going back to slightly more geometric forms, uh, getting a little boxy again, um, even um, daring to sort of interrupt play uh, rather than uh, running beside it or working with angles because angles have dominated the game so much. Actually, something that, that, that interjects itself, runs straight across. Not necessarily um, going all the way back to the penal school, but the idea of, of, of um, sort of doorstops at the side, like little, um, but interrupting the flow, like mm-hmm. having, having complete flow and then interrupting it. 
but um, it, it kind of plays off some of the ideas of the the rectilinear forms of Rayner, but not playing off those forms. I mean, something a little bit more even old school than that, more uh, a, a little bit more um, straight-lined. Uh, I, I do think that possibility would be almost jarring at this point because we haven't seen anything like it. I do think Andy Staples has kind of touched that a little bit with his Meadowbrook work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found some of the things I saw there super compelling, and I think if anybody's done anything that sort of caught my eye in the last little while, I think it's that particular project. So if, uh, if somebody was looking for something different, that's where I'd point them. Right. Um, just to, to look for something that, that does sort of run slightly um, away from the flow of everything else. So that, that would be actually a, a just because that would probably be your next question. Pick a project. That would be the project. So that, yeah, that sounds interesting. You know, when you started off on your own and, and you left Doug Carrick, it was I think it was two thousand six, and at that time, you know, the new courses were still being built. It wasn't the dire uh, kind of construction and uh, budgetary and developmental area era that we're still in. You know, and if you'd have been in that position and gone out on your own ten or twenty years earlier, you would have had you know thirty courses under your new courses under your belt right now. But in in that time when you left, you said it in a newspaper article, you said, quote, deep in my heart I feel I can build better courses than what's out there. Um, and you just kind of laid out uh, a t- uh, sort of a template for what that course might might look like. But how frustrating has that been since right when you were getting out and kind of going out on your own that just the opportunities completely disintegrated? I would say if you asked me this question up until a couple of years ago, I would have, um, being sort of very open, I would have just said uh, horribly frustrating and and, uh, terribly disappointing. Uh, One of the wonderful things with getting a little bit older is uh, uh, gaining some perspective. And uh, I'm disappointed I haven't had uh, a, a brand new site to work on, and I hope before I pack it all in, that I do get the, an opportunity or a couple of opportunities. I'd actually, I would agree tomorrow morning, if you gave me one of the sites we sort of talked about earlier on, one of the, the nice sites, and it doesn't have to be Oceanside or anything else, but just give me one really great site. You give me one, I'd actually give up everything else to take the one site. Right. Just to have one opportunity. Because we all as artists want to express ourselves completely once. I, I've had a a complete rebuild where I was given an existing golf course and I reconfigured part of it and, and redid the whole thing, every every part of it. It was nice to sort of get the opportunity to completely express what I believe in and work in a style which is not like the, the, the uh, current minimalist style, but just to, to express myself the way I see golf, the way I believe in golf, the way I think it should be played, the way I... I think something should be flexible on its setup to allow the challenge to 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 flex by sort of the choices we make on how we we keep that golf course rather than uh, relying on bunkering and, and and essentially define problems to actually allow it to flex. It's, it's funny enough. It's the Augusta model. That's the easiest golf course in the world uh, when the members play it, and the hardest golf course when the pros play it. And mm-hmm. part of it is because it's allows that flexibility and setup. So I am I am disappointed. I'm not as disappointed as I used to be because frankly I've been working in the business since 89 and I'm lucky. 
not everybody gets an opportunity to, and a lot of people trust me uh, a lot to do what I need to do. And how could I be envious or bitter or disappointed when if, if you can step aside and realize that I get to work in a really, really cool business. So I, I'm actually more grateful now than I probably ever have been on understanding that uh, I'm lucky because not everybody gets to practice. Right. Kind of going back on some of those ideas you had about what a diversion in modern architecture might look like, it kind of struck me that there were a lot of similarities to what you were describing as what Pete Dye did back in the 60s when he built Harbortown and was reacting against the dominant trends of the era and kind of going smaller. Um, you know, we've spent the last 20 years sort of educating the golfing public or trying to educate the golfing public about the you know, the, the worthiness of, of width and openness and the ground game. And we're fine. I feel like we're kind of starting to make headway in that and, and having just the common retail golfer appreciate that a little bit more. But it wouldn't it be it's interesting to think about if there was going to be a another artistic movement that went another direction, we'd have to retrain the public all over again. Do now that we've gotten to this point where they expect, you know, width and firm turf, they'd have to kind of readjust it. Should the average club member or public golf course player always have to play catch up, or how how close of attention should they pay to architecture? Is it their obligation to look at what's provided out there and and understand it and and sort of rationalize it, or should they just be able to go out and play and have a good time? What's the role? What's what should be expected of them? Nothing. They should play. What, they should play places that make them happy. And it's actually up to us to put it this way. Not everything, not everything in architecture should make you, uh, you picked on strands or you picked strands. And this is a great example. I love tobacco road. I don't ever want to design a golf course like it, but I love tobacco road. Tobacco road makes many very upset and makes a segment very happy. It's, it's an expression. And and people will choose either to play it or not to play it, but it does push the art form. So, what really works? I'm gonna I'll go about. I'll, I'll get there eventually. What really works right now with minimalism, which again you and I both don't like the expression, is the width allows playability, which allows accessibility, which allows all level of game of players to enjoy it. And essentially, that's the the Kaiser idea of. Um, uh, a little extra comfort is good because it makes a lot more people happy and it allows a lot more people into those golf courses. And it's really good for the game. So the, the current movement deserves a lot of credit because it, it is actually encouraging people to enjoy the game and make the public player more comfortable. They may not know why, but they are definitely enjoying the golf more. But if we go back to art, the the... I haven't taken anybody to a museum yet who's not gone and seen a, a set of Monet's without being awestruck and happy. I have very rarely ever taken anybody to see um, a Picasso that's made them happy. But both were important. And it's the same with golf architecture. It's really important to have some things that don't make you as... to give you the choice. Um, something that won't make you constantly happy but it's something that allows you to challenge your game. The variety is good. It allows you to, to make choices depending on how you feel. It's like 
We do need 5% of the golf courses to be super hard and to be tournament worthy, but we do need 90% of the golf courses not to be. That's our problem was we had the pyramid upside down for a long time. Unfortunately, we're flipping the pyramid over slowly over time. But it's the same standpoint. I love the idea of going to play something that's wide open, and that's probably what I'm going to choose most times with width. But it's nice also to go and play another golf course with another aesthetic. It's one of the joys of the game is our stadiums, for lack of a better term, our, our, our places are infinitely different. And one of the joys, one of the reasons I go to the UK all the time is I love the differences between places. And the one thing I, I don't, I'm not a Rota guy. I actually go and play every little golf course. It could be par 65. I don't care. I'll play anything in, a, in an area. And I'm looking for the variety. And I think it's really important to have the variety. And that's why I said the, the struggle I've got is if you get Tom, Bill, Gill to build a, a golf course like they have at Streamsong. My complaint about Streamsong is I have the same experience in all three. What I'm missing is the alternative. The It's like I think up at Sand Valley, if I could give advice to the boys, you got David at the extreme width, you've got Bill in that traditional, wonderful, slightly wider version of golf, which I, I think is really exceptional. What would be really interesting is something that's either harder, uh, Pine Valley-ish, that's got width, but it's deep and difficult, or something that's all of a sudden slightly shorter and narrower and and stays kind of tighter and, and the distances between things are shorter and it doesn't embrace a massive landscape. It actually tries to stay within a very small section of the property. The contrast will be fabulous. And I mean, that's where I, I, I see these resorts. My struggle is when all three of the golf courses feel the same, I lose interest in the resort because I feel like I'm having the same experience, even though it's over three different golf courses. What I really th would like to see is I'd like to see them mix things up. I do actually think Bannon Dunes doesn't get credit for the mixture. While the styles are in the same area, I do actually think the work mixes well. Um, whereas I find when I go to Streamsong, I feel like it's the same. Yeah, I don't get the impression that Mike Kaiser is is going to want to, for resort play, you know, do something as difficult as Pine Valley, at least based on what I've heard. But I, I agree that would be, a, that would be a, a wonderful counterpoint to the other two courses at Sand Valley as an example. Uh, let but, me ask you this. I, but if I went to Sand Valley, sorry to interrupt you, but if I went to Sand Valley and uh, the third golf course or the fourth golf course is Pine Valley Tough, I'd be super excited about building my trip on the other golf courses to that point to play that golf course. And I would probably go there more than Bandon Dunes or Cabot or anywhere else because I would want to have that moment where I'm going to celebrate the successes and I'm going to have a good laugh about the crushes because I really do, like I'm an average player and I do prefer width and I choose golf courses by width, but I sure as hell love to go to a place like Pine Valley to, to have that experience as well. I want all of that variety. I don't want to commit to everything at the the stream song width. I, I actually want every once in a while to have everything brought up or to have a wing foot sort of stare me in the face and, and have to see if I can keep it together. Yeah, and, and that's again going back to the, the second golden age premise. And you, I think you're the you really nailed it. Is the di the depth and diversity? If you think about the first golden age, you have diversity. You have 
a Seminole, you have a Pinehurst, you have a Winged Foot, uh, you know, you have an Oak Hill, you have those old New England Ross courses, you have such a variety of, of styles, uh, the LA courses, and, and we don't have anywhere near that diversity now. Well, if I, if I was to um, complain in an offhand way, because I'm always struggling with the idea of I wish they would seek out more architects. Like, there's only so many opportunities, and I wish more architects would get an opportunity. And and that would be, but I mean, that's a, it's an unfair criticism of the people developing because you still try, you have to develop uh, to achieve success. So why would you get out of something that works until it fails? So if it's in an offhand way, I'm I'm waiting for all all this. The, the the movement to actually see some failures because that's the most likely chance that we'll see some change. Mm. As strange as it sounds, or we need um, a, um, a stronger economy to push that along. But I'll be frank with you, I still think we're 10 years removed from that date anyway, at least eight. Um, I had always said we wouldn't see any change till 2000. We've actually seen more improvement than I expected, but I still don't see anything that's going to push the the golf community along to actually start to develop again. It just, just doesn't feel like it's there. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to my kind of clumsy question about the consumer and the and the average player. And Until they begin to demand something different, it's hard to envision anything changing. Right now, they're not demanding more golf. You know, there's there isn't no. the market for it. They, we've, like I keep saying, we've trained them to idolize the the modern the great modern sandy course uh, not not to the exclusion of everything else but that's sort of the ideal so then there's enough of that to go around right now so it does yeah I agree with you I don't see a whole lot of change uh, coming imminently well the interesting thing for me is no matter what type of greens and essentially these fairways, unless you get super wide, the costs are the same. So the quality of golf isn't dictated by that. It becomes more the um, the higher end ideas like uh, slit draining fairways or sand capping or uh, when people get into, like I, like I look at uh, what Afazio will do, for example, they'll often take a site. Um, we had a site up here actually where the site was already light soil, so it drained fine. But they sandcapped the whole thing, um, in theory, because they thought they might be able to hold a Canadian Open. But part of it is it, it's going to the excess on the, the, the detailing end of things and sort of losing um, sight of, of what the economics of the game are and what's necessary. And I, I think that's part of that's why I say if I think something strips itself down to a little bit more, um, you know, comes a little narrower than it it's been, but with those same ideas of try, let's try not to move very much material around. You know, it, it's reacting to where the economics of the game are. Also, what I like about I said a little shorter, a little tighter. It would also land use. It would start to reduce land use. It would start to reduce maintained area. I actually think all the answers have to do with um, a sustainability, whether it's economics or whether it's um, environmental, or particularly water that eventually I do think the next push is actually going to come from that. So David's idea of maximalism or width or excessive width or whatever you want to call that, that's not where the future lies. The future lies, because the rest of golf has to still be built closer to 
uh, urban centers to survive. And I, that's why I think it, whatever the next is going to be, it has to be on a smaller scale. By the way, if if you asked me what would I if if I could do something definitive to for the good of the game and to make a statement, mm-hmm. I'd love an opportunity. If I could talk to guys in the Sand Valley letting me produce a golf course, first thing I'd do is I produce the sixty nine or sixty eight on on purpose. And I'll yeah. give you a couple of reasons for that. One is to finally knock down that damn door of par seventy mm-hmm. and just hammer it down with something of high quality. But the other end of it is, what's everybody want to do for the most part when they go out? They want to break 100, they want to break 90, they want to break 80, or they want to break 70. If you reduce the par, you're actually putting them in, whether they realize it or not, putting them in a better position to do that. And I think it would work within a resort. I kind of wish whether Michael or the boys or, or somebody else or Streamsong, somebody would actually take that on as a, as a concept, but produce super high-quality golf. All the great fours, the great short, the super long fours, the, the, the great short fours, the mixture in the threes, essentially what you're doing is you're minimizing the number of par fives you use. That's, what? you know, if, if you ask me if, if I was given the, the keys to the wheelhouse to do something, to really step out there, and my mandate was see where you can take us, it would be that. But I'd also take one of their sites, and I would not do open, wasty, sandy areas. I would do something actually slightly different. Just because I think the contrast would be jarring enough to be exciting. What would be more radically acceptable? Uh, building a, a modern golf course at a resort like that at par 68 or par 69, or building that same course and just removing par value altogether? That would Actually, I, that idea excites me. Is, yeah, just it excites to, me. It's very exciting. Without any pars, it's very exciting to think about. Would would it? Is it possible? Would it be accepted? Would any d- developer ever sign on to that? Because that that would be a radical shift on a fundamental level, not just well, an aesthetic no, or artistic. There's no par on the card at Friars Head. I don't think there's any par or yardage. I've never been there. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm fairly certain the card's clean. Um, something like that at the. Um, at the Warren course, is it they don't have yardages? Maybe I'm not sure, but it certainly hasn't hasn't caught on. But that would be yeah, as a at a high profile place where the retail golfer could go and experience it. That would be a fascinating project. Well, I, what's encouraging the uh, the potential is right now all these short golf courses. By the way, I'm loving what I'm seeing. My favorite course at Sand Valley is actually the short. Mm-hmm. Um, it's brilliant. It's really fun. It's really interesting. But I love the fact that uh, Corn Crenshaw did the 13-hole layout for the preserve. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of not building 18 holes, for one, and we're seeing a lot more of that now, but the idea of just building holes. Uh, I do know Bill talked about the having the additional flexibility since it's a short course and it's for fun and it's not really about trying to put together a score while you're on your traveling trip it's more of an an after or an additional idea that that allows them a little more flexibility on on pushing the buttons a little bit further or doing something a little bit out of the box so your idea of no scorecard kind of goes with that i i i'd love to see i'd love to see somebody take 
take that sort of um, I don't think it's a risk. See, that's the funny part for me is I think if some I think, for example, at Sand Valley, if they built a third of the fourth golf, so let's say the fourth golf course, because they've got four quadrants. If they built the fourth golf course intentionally below the par of 70 um, in whatever form they choose to do it, like I, funny enough, I think a Pine Valley idea at 68 or 69 so that it's, it's that hard, but it's also the pars reduced and you could have a lot more shorter fours. It'd be a fascinating place to play. Um, Mike, Mike Kaiser, are you listening to this? We need, <laughs> let's get this, let's get this podcast in his ear, in his ear. <laughs> I, I agree. I, you well, know, I, I pick up that one just because, um, you know, in theory that I, 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 I've always assumed the boys and it's their job. I've met Mike and, uh, Chris, they're, they're really smart and they're really nice, really, really nice boys. And, um, I'm sure they're going to do something slightly different than their dad. Why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned the, the boys. I'm, I'm taking it. We're talking about Doak and uh, Bill Corr and Gil Hans. Yeah, they're, they're essentially the leading architects Absolutely. of our time. What, yep. makes, what makes them so great? Is it just um, opportunity? They got, they got to that style no. first? Uh, is, uh, are they visionaries? With, what, what separates with, them? Um, uh, part of it's rooting talent. Uh, the ability to find golf holes. And then part of it is the um, dedication to details. And to pick a, to, uh, pick a nerdy architectural part of it, the three of them are exceptional. And the people that work for them, I've got to give the credit to the people that work for them. Yeah, of course. They are exceptional at tying in their work to make the tie-ins blend so seamlessly in that you don't know where their work ends and where the actual natural site begins. And that's what sets them apart from the modern. Now that's the, the, the nerdy answer, but that actually points out more of what they do. Is, is there, is that talent exclusive to them? Or do you think that there are, you know, another dozen guys in your profession that could do the same type of work if given the chance? I know you. I know you. You believe you can. So there's one. I think they've proven themselves over time and over multiple projects. So you've got to give. You've got to tip your hat to them in particular. The tie-ins. It's funny. We've talked about Pacific Dunes. The tie-ins at Pacific Dunes are exceptional. Exceptional, particularly when you know the fun part for me is I've walked around it with Tom and I know where he moved material. And to know where you move material and then to look at where it ties in, it's just an exceptionally well done job. And it is part of the whole, the experience is, is holistic. It, it's not just a bunker place. This is where people who are really into architecture kind of lose sight. That yes, strategies are part of, you know, finding the holes is, is the essential part. The ideas that we try to communicate or try to develop or try to, um, or, or the riddles that we try to present are the next third. Some are good at, at riddle making, some are not very good at it. They just fall to sort of two or three patterns. And then the last thing is making it all fit seamlessly in. And I would say that last aspect is where golf in general is the weakest. And I think part of it is beyond the strategies, 
a lot of architects and a lot of people involved in in building golf courses it's not as exciting so it's easy to lose your attention or lose your focus at the end whereas it's super exciting creating a a bunker wall or a green site or tying something in or 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 getting something to um, creating the riddle is, is super exciting and everybody's full attention is always on at that moment or should be. Yeah. I've, I've heard Bill Coor talk about how, I think he said this to me before, you know, it's one thing, you know, there are a lot of people, anybody can read a book and look at a, you know, satellite image and see how a bunker placement affects strategy. And that's great. But the real architecture comes in, can you build it? Can you execute it on the ground? Can you make it all work together? And so what you're saying is that that's what really separates, it has, that's such an elemental part to what great architecture is. But, but again, building that strategy, again, is just part of it. Getting the object, the, the hazard that you've introduced or the green that you've placed to flow to a point that it looked like you touched nothing is the next level. And those three get to that next level and very few people do. Almost all golf courses, you can see the architecture and you can see exactly where the work stopped. And if you can see where the work stopped, it never, it, it, it never got a chance to, to, to blend out. Uh, the, the old line I always loved about uh, the joy of a McKenzie course is not looking at it from the tee, it's looking at it from the green, because when you look back often, you can't find the existing hazards. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's blending grades. I, 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 I've worked on a book on Stanley Thompson, and I talked about Capilano. The struggle at Capilano for Thompson was St. George's, he was able to cut all the hazards into the faces of hills, which is easy. The tie-in is right into the slope of the hill. You don't have far to tie in anything that's cut into a, uh, a face of a hill. All the hazards, for the most part, at Capilano are side hill. When you've got to make something side hill blend, you have to go, going up the hill is fine, but you have to go down the hill a long ways to get it to go away, to get the tie-ins to go away, to disappear. You know, if, sometimes you're being forced to work 30, 40, 50 feet, maybe even 100 feet if you've got something really complex. That's where it takes dedication to keep working and working till it finally fits. And that's where architecture has been lacking. That's why the, the second golden age could be described as the willingness to blend. Um, it's the idea of actually going far enough to make everything look natural. So that's where the two tie in really well. It's that it's, it's the effort or the conviction to see it through to the very, very, very end. And I added the varies because it actually takes that much work to get everything finally to tie in perfectly. Yeah. And I think that on that point, another delineation between the architecture that we've seen in the 21st century and that which came, you know, the tw- at least 20 years before that, one of the big delineations is these teams of shapers, you know, Core and, and Tom have, and Gil, and, you know, these guys who are so passionate and fervent to do good work, staying there and being it, given the time and creativity to finish out these uh, bunker, float out these features. Whereas, you know, the era before that, it was general contracting. You know, you'd see something on a piece of paper and hand it over to a guy who was hired to, you know, to 
do a bunch of different things on that site. And that's something that is is different now. And I, I, going back to what you're saying is probably the reason that the quality of these golf courses is so high now, and it's and they look so different than they had in the past. I agree with that, but you can get, like, I think the Fazio group, I picked on them before, so I should give them a compliment. Um, you know, that's all design build, or not design build, that's all uh, contractor build. Mm-hmm. But that works all tied out really well a lot of times, too. And the reason it's tied out well is because the way the contracts are set up. So it's not necessarily 100% a design build, but I will give credit to those people on site in particular. It, it, no matter who it is, whether it's a contractor or whether it's, say, Tom's guys, for example, since we talked about them, or Gil's guys or Bill's guys, it's the commitment on site of those individuals to see it through to the end. To see, to, Essentially, that's what it all comes down to. Really great work comes down to, the, to seeing every last detail down to the finish. Uh, we talked about um, working on the house. Great, really exceptional um, woodwork on a house involves doing the extra details. A lot of times uh, it involves multiple layers of trim to get something really to come to life. Well, golf works the same way. You can't just push it around with a dozer and be done with it. You've got to work it with smaller and smaller machines and keep pushing the material out and out and out till finally you can't tell where the dozer ever worked in the first place. That's sort of uh, where we've come to. Now, the nice thing is the, the, our, the mini X's can remove some of the stages and we can get that down to very small pieces of equipment very quickly. But it, 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 it's, it, it's like sanding. It, it, you, you, you don't just rough sand it and call it a day. You've got to rough sand it, then you've got to use a medium sand and then a a fine sand, and then if you're really into what you're doing with a piece of furniture, a lot of times you've actually got just a hand block, and you're working little things and looking, and you're spending more time looking than you're actually sanding because you're trying to make sure every little imperfection goes away. Golf is like that. It, 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 and then the other thing is it's asking somebody to come over and say, all right, what didn't I tie in? Well, what do I need to work on? It's it's Your eyes are too used to looking at it. Asking, and that's where the design bill works better than anything else is they ask each other to come over and say, all right, what do I got to fix? And that's where they're great. Right. You've always been a, just to kind of shift it, shift in a, a different direction right now. You've always been a prolific writer and been willing to share your thoughts and ideas on golf course architecture, uh, on your blogs over the years. And, uh, you write in different formats, magazines, etc. which has been great. I've been following your writing since, you know, I think like 2000, Seven two thousand eight or whenever when you were doing the the Caddyshack blog, uh, and you recently wrote a feature for Golf Course Architecture magazine, thinking that we might be at the end of the restoration era. Um, very interesting. There's a lot to chew on in that piece, but maybe if you could summarize what your thoughts are on that topic really quickly, and then we can kind of dive into that a little bit more. Okay, so it it plays uh, at a couple of different levels. So the first one is the majority of the restoration work that needed to be done has been done. I've just sort of come to that realization that um, a lot of the best examples of particular architects have been preserved or restored, and that um, essentially a lot of the uh, movement nowadays is, a, is about other 
examples, maybe um, uh, less well-known examples. So there's still restoration going on. But the other thing I noticed was even in the people who were doing the early restorations is um, Tom had, had said at one point, you know, really only four or five of the very greatest pieces of a particular architect's work should be preserved. And that every, you know, if, if things can be improved, they should be improved on the other works. And I think that mindset has started to permeate over time, is that even some of the people who are well-known for restoration have started to believe that uh, they've taken what I called a hybrid approach in that magazine article, the idea of, you know what, if I can improve three or four of the holes and hide the work that I've done within the, the fabric and the context, and so it plays the same, it feels the same, it looks the same, I can get a better golf course. And, and the, the real encouragement to that was Carl Phillips did an exceptional job at Cal Club where he restored some things and he built new holes and made them fit so that it all feels like it was all part of the original golf course. And it's an exception, and, and he made the right decisions and it's an exceptional piece of work. I think it also encouraged a lot of architects to be more willing to change more. So what we've ended up with is we've ended up with a really small segment who are really into restoration. And some people will still do restoration, but I, I think the inclination now is to do a little bit more change. And I think over time that's become more and more aggressive. So that was sort of what I was pointing out, that is I think we're, we're in the hybrid movement and pure restoration is, is waning. And I also, what I didn't talk about there, but what I have talked about with some of the guys who are really into restoration like myself the clubs now are more interested in making more deviations. So they, 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 they want to preserve their history, but their willingness to make change or their, their willingness to encourage slightly more change has, been a, has, been, has come over the last, uh, this decade in particular. So we're finding it interesting that um, the idea of restoration is, you know, it had a nice long run of 20 years has kind of lost its momentum. So, uh, and then the last thing is uh, the lack of opportunity for new work or the lack of opportunity to express themselves. I really do believe that some architects have, have sort of finally hit that point of where they get a, a, a semi-historical golf course, they're more willing to actually be more adventurous because they're not getting the opportunity to express themselves and so what they're doing is they're jumping immediately to the hybrid idea. And so what, what they're a lot better at and what collectively I'd say architects are a lot better at is being honest or being true to the original fabric and the original architecture, but being more aggressive with the architecture itself. So it'll look and feel and play the same way, but it won't be original form anymore. And I think architects have become more willing to make bigger changes. So that's what the, the whole uh, opinion piece was about. I am a historian. I, I actually, I'm probably, I, I've been teased by one of my closest friends of, um, uh, I think his line was, if you're as good a writer as you were an architect, you'd be the best architect. He had, he had some good crack anyway. Um, <laughs> but I, I am an observer and I, I think I'm willing, I'm comfortable with observing patterns and I like to observe patterns on the fly. Because I'm more, in, I really do love the history of architecture and the history of the game, and so that was my observation of I just feel the sea change happening, and I just thought I would talk about it at the time. Yeah, no, I mean the first thing that came to mind when I read that is 
your comments about how certain architects may be getting to that point where they're using a historic, an older golf course, even if it's only semi-historic, they're using that tapestry to exercise some level of creativity or this urge that they're not getting elsewhere. And I, my first thought was, wow, that concept is really going to piss a lot of people off because there are purists out there who even, you know, suggesting that you would alter things beyond a small percentage, you know, they they will fight you to the death about that. I thought, wow, wow, if this is the trend that's happening, um, it's there's going to be a lot of dust-ups in the future. Well, it's funny. I, I, I Part of it came from uh, I looked at a, a project where I liked the end result. So I'm going to say that right off the bat. I liked the end result, and the person writing about it called it a restoration and kept using that word. And I knew for a fact there was far more change. And, it, and what struck me was I felt the architect, um, because of who they were, were given the benefit of the doubt. And that that they had made far more change than than had than anybody realized and it, it looked good it, the end results were great so again i want to come back to that but i'm finding the the restoration word is is just becoming really inaccurate because there's only so many really true restorations taking place but i'm finding the the uh, it's becoming fluid again. And, and it's funny, I think we worked so hard to wrestle that word away from the people doing renovation. And now I feel like they've got both hands on it. And I've long let go. It, they've got it again. Um, and so it just struck, that was one of the things that sort of struck me through this process was I was actually surprised by some of the people who I thought were very pure or at least pure were less so now. And it took me a little off guard. There are still some some guys who've been doing this for a while that are pure. Would you agree with that? I mean, I'm imagining. Yeah, but and, the and, funny part is they don't. They aren't. If somebody says, "Well, such and such is being restored," their names never show up on a golf club atlas. The ones are really, really, really good and true, and they rarely ever show up. Who are you thinking of? Yeah. It, this is one of those ones where I'm going to plead the fifth because I, by not saying names, I'm going to piss people off. And by saying names, I'm going to piss people off. Would you put Ron so, Pritchard in that category? As I said, I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. <laughs> okay. I had, um, he was on this, he was on this podcast If you before, want to take so. this conversation off, then I'm comfortable on doing it, okay. but I'm not going to do it on a public forum. Okay. Well, no, nobody listens to this anyway, Ian. You got to know yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think I I think um, I don't mind being really strong on my opinions, but I I, I like to be very careful when it comes to um, having potential impact on somebody's livelihood. I think that's up to other people to judge, not me. When I'm up here, okay. The other, you know, the on this concept of of the work being done in the name of restoration and yet there's a little more uh freelancing going on in the process in the process it, it, it i'm not a necessarily a, a purist i'm not a i wouldn't consider myself a hardliner i, I think i'm a more of a realist but it that concept does seem like a slippery slope 
because if you carry it out to one degree and then two degrees and then a, a few more guys are doing it, doesn't that just get us back to where we were like in the 1950s and 60s where suddenly you're, you know, you're thinking that you have a better idea of what the golf course should be than the original architect did, and that's what happened all through the middle of last century? So uh, a long time ago, I was uh, found myself uh, with an architect who works in, on an extremely famous piece of architecture, and I asked them, is there anything that just should be preserved at all costs that um, that was so good there was no way it could be improved upon? And their comment was, everything can be improved. And I think that defines the slippery slope, is when... I, I do I do believe a, a good example is I went out to Port Rush and I do believe it's better than it was and and I went into that really relaxed to see that, that change. It does happen where it turns out better, but the problem with that premise is it always assumes the architect who's looking at the work is better than the original architect, and a lot of modern architects are not Mackenzie or Tillinghast. They don't have the same vision, and the other thing I've, I've talked about in, in other forms is um, it's my house of cards analogy is sometimes we can't everybody thinks they can define greatness by a checklist and, and that's horseshit you can't greatness sometimes is just the sum of parts that we don't understand sometimes it's because emotions are part of architecture and they are part of the game and they are part of our feelings and they are part of play but you can't define emotions they just are and um, what I struggle with is I think sometimes we don't recognize that, you know, we can change out cards and sometimes the whole stack will stay up, but we can pull the wrong card out and it all comes apart, never to go back together again. And this is where I struggle with the idea of a lot of times people take on what's perceived to be the weakest hole. They'll make a change and the whole thing just doesn't feel right anymore. It, it doesn't feel like it used to. And what it is is, there's a rhythm to the game. Marion is the greatest example that we can clearly define. It's a six. It's a series of six-hole rhythms where it's it's challenging but not overwhelming. Clear opportunity, and then the final six is perseverance. So it, it's a it's a preparation for the chance to be aggressive, and then the the chance to survive essentially. But it, it the the rhythms really defined really well. It's one that everybody can get their heads around. Uh, Cyprus has a rhythm where it, it's a build towards a point. It, it, it's, um, it's, it's like a piece of music moving towards a crescendo. My problem with a lot of times is when people start to tinker with golf courses, they don't understand that there is a hole to it. They, and a lot of um, sort of people who are into golf architecture a lot of times concentrate too much on individual holes and individual items within holes that there is a bigger picture. And sometimes what we don't understand is how well it all goes together. And um, to me, the, one of the great losses is the breather hole, the, the intentionally easy or comfortable or welcoming hole to set up the next run, whether it's uh, visually dramatic or extremely difficult, but it provides sort of the rhythms of a roller coaster is there's preparation for the, you know, for the, the loop that essentially you, you are um, being prepared by the architect by relaxing you. They're preparing you to either be wowed or to be um, nervous or whatever they're, they're trying to do. 
And I think sometimes when we sit there and we start just tinkering and tinkering and tinkering, we undermine the rhythms that the golden age architects managed to bring to the golf courses. And I think sometimes we fail to bring the same rhythms. And I, I, I do think the new golden age or the minimalists are a little bit better at, at understanding the rhythms, the rhythmic cycle. I think the failure in modern architecture and the idea of 18 signature holes or the hard par easy bogey is essentially it's like a flat line on a on a on a, a heart monitor. That's the last thing you want. You want highs and lows. Ideally, you want really high highs and really low lows because you 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 want your emotions all over the place because that creates engagement. Um, that's why we love roller coasters. It, it, it's it's the feeling of near panic and also the um, the relax the the, the respite or the relaxation between it, it it's why i got into understanding roller coaster design to see if i could understand rhythm um but i do think that some of the renovations get away from the idea that there are holistic moments to these golf courses i think we have a tendency to over touch and not respect some of the some of the perceived flaws actually sometimes are those magical cards that are actually holding pieces together. Uh, Riviera is a good example where the more they've tinkered with it, the more they've undone. It was never perfect, but it was perfect. If you can understand that at that sure. point, yeah. it, it was perfect in its flaws because its flaws work perfectly. The more they've tinkered, the more they've tried to organize it and contextualize it. And, and the more it doesn't feel right to me, the, the, the more it, it's, becoming less of a whole it, it i mean it's full of amazing moments but every time they tinker they just seem to take some of the charm out of it and charm is part of golf and it and it's where that's why to me i've always leaned on the idea of more preservation and more restoration because all of that's charming even in its imperfections it doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't every moment doesn't have to fully engage you or ask you a a, a question or create a decision or sometimes it's nice to have something open right? because then it places more emphasis on the next moment. It's like Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, compression and release, a tight hallway to a large room to make the, what he's doing is he's making the large room feel much grander than it really is. Architecture works the same way. If you give everybody the, all the space in the world, you relax them. If all of a sudden you give them a really tight target to follow, which, by the way, this is the tenth of Riviera, all the room in the world, though even though you're supposed to play to one very small area, followed by the most pinpoint shot you'll ever face. It just makes that shot seem even harder because it, it's in context with the previous shot. Mm -hmm. This matters, but I think this is lost sometimes. In That's why I think renovations sometimes are too heavy-handed because they don't understand that um, some of the nuances don't fit into neat defined categories or, or things you can read. They just are. Yeah. The renovation or restoration even can, can run the risk of sanitizing the rough edges that make, make for character. Just like you're saying, speaking of uh, the tent at Riviera, that reminds me of something from your golf uh, course architecture story that we've been talking about. Something that I didn't, didn't realize. I thought it was fascinating when I read it. You said that, the concept of really short, tight chipping areas around greens, that short grass, has really only been in existence for about 30 years. We didn't have the 
agricultural or agronomical technology to really cut the cut the grass or get the grass to grow any tighter and shorter up until that point. I didn't know. Do you all that apron around Riviera over the green, over the green to the left is, you know, puttable. You can't really the angle's wrong from some places, but it is back when Riviera was was younger did you have to always chip the ball and get the ball lofted up in the air? Like what? I didn't. Part of that, part of that's added. So this part of that's a renovation. Um, so I, unfortunately, I think only somebody like Jeff Sackleford could answer your question on exactly what was over there. Mm-hmm. The, the point I was making on the tightness of turf is we had short turf at places like Pinehurst, but it depended on conditions to to what you could use but for the most part it was chipping turf we've now got our short turf to putting turf and that's where the interesting aspect of that is the high handicap obviously can play to their strengths which are generally putting it up those slopes rather than even chipping it but definitely not flopping it but the cool part is the hardest shot in golf is a super tight live with a flop wedge right but the really good player to control the spin and control the to minimize their their um distance has a tendency to want to play that shot. And that's why it's the great equalizer. So the short grass around the 10th of Riviera is essentially it's pressure. It allows the ball to run away, but it creates pressure as well if you're sitting on that surface. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that option to putt, chip, or flop, not that they, they didn't have 60-degree wedges back in 1930, but that didn't exist until recently. Not how we understand it today and how we, um, and funny enough, in, in a minor way, how we expect it. One of my frustrations is you're working with a golf course that has chipping areas and people complain about the fact that it's not tight enough, that they they essentially want putting quality. I mean, it's all relative to what you, A, what you agronomically do, but B, what you can afford to do. But yeah, the but the, what's interesting about that is when you get into, let's take a place like uh, Shinnecock. The reason Shinnecock will hold up well at this U.S. Open is they can top dress and they can dry out those areas around the greens so that the near miss becomes sometimes catastrophic if you hit it well through the back, like off the side and out the back. You think about it, the slopes are going away from you and they're super dry and super fast. So it, what it does is it, it, it the way we can now present those short grass areas does address um keeping the difficulty for high-end play. But the cool part is if you've ever been out there in the fall when they, they kind of let the areas grow up, it's actually pretty manageable and pretty fun. Mm-hmm. So while the ball runs, because the turf's really not growing that fast anymore at that point, and we get the wonderful fall condition, I always like to go out that area, sort of November. Uh, to Canadians, that's like summer. Um, yeah. And um, but the nice part is it, it's kept longer, so you don't seem to get that catastrophic bounce. So it's still a little bit more playable. It, it's just it, it's what's interesting to me is as an architect, it's not a tool that the golden age had. Not like we've got it. Like we've got the ability to run the run and control the ball and get the ball in the ground, doing some things that we can actually make happen or choose to make happen more aggressively than other people, than other generations in the past. And I think the one question I've asked a couple of times at different conferences I've gone to is why aren't we as architects, uh, you do see and credit to, to Tom in particular, but to Tom, Bill and, and Gil, they use the ground a lot. The, the, the tight 
turf around the ground, and that's why they stand out, and that's why minimalism stands out because it still re- it creates a defense against the good player without removing any of the playability for the weaker handicap. So it's a really, really good answer. But I've always argued, if it's, I, I would argue it's a, almost a better defense than a bunker unless the bunker's really severe. Why aren't we relying on short turf and only uh, working with sort of 25 to 30 bunkers? I do think that's, you know, coming back to the idea of where can we go, I think that's where we're going to go. I, I did a rebuild for Maple Downs. We have 20, oh, we actually have 30 bunkers. We have 30 bunkers in the end instead of 56, which they started with. And I guarantee you it's tougher to play than it was. And what it is is there's just more short grass in play and there's a little bit more teeth in the greens. It's such a simple, elegant model. And yep. yeah, it'd be great to, to see it. You know, I also, but come make those bunkers have some teeth too, though. That that's still got to be the the number one, you know, penal hazard. You have to take something away. Well, in in their case, the bunkers we're down to all of them are are um, they're not all round wreckers, but there's a lot of round wreckers out there where you're six eight feet below the surface, a lot. <laughs> but the idea was you can also play out to a side that's got nothing, and you can try to use those slopes to feed. So as a high handicap, you've always got the options to play around. Out there, there's there's no double-sided bunkering anywhere. So you can just figure out your way to play around things. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a couple at the greens, but not not very many even at that. Well, we've been going at it for a little bit here, Ian, and we should probably start walking it to the door. Um <laughs> uh, one of the things I, I asked um, Mike DeVries this, you know, he he had the reputation sort of as being like the most underrated or underappreciated, really good architect. So I asked him wh- who he thought was the most underrated and underappreciated architect to kind of take the mantle off him and pass it on to somebody else. And he picked uh, Ron Force, who I'm sure you know, in, in the yeah. restoration circles. So I'm going to ask you the same question. Don't name yourself because somebody, uh, somebody else might choose you for that category um but it doesn't have to be a young person it could be somebody who's been around the block who do you think is the doesn't get the recognition that they deserve so i think his choice was excellent and i'm going to pick bruce hepner and funny enough i think mike and i are 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 essentially both on the same mindset just picking a different person Mm -hmm. but i think ron is an exceptional choice for that i agree with mike and uh, for me, it's Bruce Hepner. And you know what? I'm picking. I'm picking between small little degrees between the two of them. Well, I have all the time in the world for both guys. Let's just say Ron's already taken, so you had to go someplace. What What do you like about Bruce's work? What What, what stands out? I think he can do it all. Um, I, I don't think there's an architect he can't work with. I think his work is always exceptional. I, I think the fact he chooses to do a little bit less and to be a lot more hands-on uh, delivers a, a better product. Um, I think he may be able to grasp a golf. The reason I would have picked him first over anybody anyway is I, I think he's got the ability to grasp a golf course better than anybody else in the game. I, I would like to think I'm close, mm-hmm. um, but I think grassing lines matter because they identify how architecture plays. And I think... Bruce has consistently identified architecture on the ground better than anybody else in the lines that he chooses. Essex County 
in uh, Massachusetts is one of the best grass golf courses in the world. Um, there's some really good examples in Australia too. Um, but if you're looking to understand how grassing lines affect play, that is the poster child to go and see. That's a great endorsement for Bruce Hepner. <laughs> um, one of the things that we talked about your prolific writing, one of the things that was always so enjoyable to read was not only on the blogs, the kind of the uh, quick, quick history of golf course architecture through the decades, which is fascinating. Highly recommend uh, people going and I'll go ahead. I'll go put a link to, to some of this stuff on the, uh, oh, sorry, the show notes. Um, but you also rank the, the top 25 architects of all time, a countdown from 25 to 1. So you like rankings, at least on some level. Uh, rank the top five golf courses in the greater Toronto area. Uh, one, St. George's. Uh, for me, two, Scarborough, mm-hmm. which would be the first one to be a little off the map. Um, our only tilling hast, uh, a series of exceptional short holes. Um, how far out am I allowed to go? Is Hamilton part of Toronto? As far as you want. Uh, you know what? I'll keep it within what's considered GTA. So within half an hour of the city. Okay. Uh, probably Weston, uh, Willie Park. Mm. Um, mm, it's getting hard now. Only two spots left. Uh, summit because of the land. Um, the architecture is good, but the land itself is is has to be seen. Uh, tremendous variety in terrain. Uh, probably my favorite on that. And uh, I got to give national credit. It's not my favorite piece of architecture because it's modern and one-dimensional. You have to fly the ball, but it is a great routing and uh, a really exceptional piece of ground. So that would be five. And diversity, you know, you got to go something a little different to mix it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? I do like playing there. It just, it's a little too uh, modern and modernist in its approach. The fact you got to fly everything all day just frustrates the hell out of me. I think it could be presented better than it does. Okay. Actually, the one everybody should go and see that I didn't list that is the most fun experience that not on there is called Lakeview. Oh, I forgot Toronto Golf. Toronto Golf is a hairy colt, so... That should have been on the list. Um, but Lakeview is a um, Herbert Strong. That And my advice to everybody is do not take any woods. Hmm. So no five wood, no three wood, no driver. Uh, hit your deuce, your three iron all day off the tee and play it from proper landing areas. And you will have the greatest golf experience you've had in a long time. It just is short. That's the only thing going against it. But if you play your approaches, I've done it once that way. I took my uh, three rescue out as my longest club, and I had the best day. It is an exceptional piece of architecture. Is there still a lot of that uh, engineered, strong, prototypical look to the golf course? Not as much as you'd see at other Herbert Strong works, but it's still largely intact in places. It's had some renos, but uh, the 77-yard 17th, you've got to play that version, not the stupid longer hole that they built that plays 90 degrees. Uh, is one of the most exceptional, frustrating fives you'll ever make. <laughs> okay. Um, last question, Ian. Top five, another top five. This one's going to be tough. Top five living architects. Your other list I'm was gonna, deceased. I, I'm actually going to take a pass on that. Oh, come on. No, I'm going to. <laughs> you know, how about if you don't? It's, have... it's, it's like the top 25 when I did it. I did. T- I had... Um, 
uh, Mike Stranson there because Mike unfortunately had passed away, which was really sad for golf. But I, I've got no problem with ranking um, architects who have passed away. I, I think living architects are in the middle of their careers. Uh, I, for example, I think Gil's career is not defined yet. Where I would argue that Bill's is cemented, probably Tom's is as well, but Gil's is not. So I just feel like uh, careers in flux. And a good example is you picked Mike, you talked about Mike Gervais. Mike, given opportunities, has done wonderful, but he's not been given enough opportunities. But what if he gets uh, something else in North America, a, a Cape Wickham, but this time here to, to make his statement? It might change everything. So I'm not going to get you. I can't get you to bite no. on that. Well, <laughs> the other end of it is that we talked about Bruce and Ron. Yeah. At what they do, I think they're the best. So, And then a guy like Kyle Phillips. I don't know all of his work, but I have been really impressed with what I've seen. And that's the struggle I've got is I just don't have a feel for – I know I know a couple people's careers really well because I've managed to see that much of them, and that being Tom Bill and, and, uh, and Gil. But – it, what's not fair is, um, you know, I, I, I think um, uh, Mackenzie and Ebert, for example, have had, ama- had an amazing career, but I don't know their new work, so I don't know how to define them. But I'm surprised they don't get much more attention than they get. But that's because they practice in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I if you ask me that question, I don't think I could have produced a top five either. I could ju- I just start listing names out of guys that I think and courses that I think are great, but I couldn't. There's no way I could I could probably come well, up with I'm a gonna, ranking. I'm going to give you a name out of the blue, and that's Mike Cocking, who works in Australia. Yeah, with Clayton and if Ogilvy. there's if there's somebody who's really 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 caught my eye in the last little while, it's Mike. Hmm. Where I think I think his talent really stands out to me and I'm really intrigued to see more of his work. He's, um, he's somebody's work. I would actually like to actively seek. Now, the funny part is I remember going out to see high point by Doak when he built it. Cause somebody tipped me off to it. And I remember going, I'm being excited about that. And I feel the same way right now about Mike. I'd like to see his work because I've just got this, um, to prove that I am slightly nerdish. I've got a spidey sense about him that, there's something extra there. Like I mentioned Andy Staples earlier. Mm-hmm. There are people every once in a while where I just think there's something there if they're given the chance. Mike's the one who just has caught my attention in the last six months. I've always known he's, he's a really terrific architect, but I'm now starting to wonder how terrific. I think you've just piqued all our interest. I mean, yeah, we I don't think as most of us in America are that familiar with his work. Keep an eye on Mike Cocking. That's a good one. You've... We didn't get a chance to talk about Stanley Thompson, which I, I hoped you would, but uh, you uh, you mentioned a little while ago that you uh, have written a book. Uh, when will that be out? And tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, I'm now telling everybody Christmas because uh, the fellow that I want to edit it has been super busy, and I just can't seem to nail him down to, to get to editing it. I've, run, I've written it, but it'll probably need to uh, – I've written, I've written it a couple of times, so uh, but it probably needs one more pass. Uh-huh. Um but it's going to take a while to get that out. But I'm hoping Christmas instead. It was going to. My goal was actually summer. I got it done uh, for January, the end of January. Um, but I know he hasn't had a chance to look at it at all, and I'm not even sure when the next chance he's going to have. 
but it's all put together. I think everybody will enjoy the collection of historical images. Uh, I've found everything on all five. So um, plans, I think people will be shocked. And I've learned things. And it's, it's kind of like uh, profiles too. and histories of five of Thompson's best courses well, in your the, estimation? The, the five greatest commissions he ever got was uh, Jasper Park, Banff Springs, St. George's, Capilano, and then finally Highland Links, all for different reasons. And they were the best. Um, he, he was ready for um, Jasper and Banff because he had done enough work to develop his skills because he, he wasn't a natural. He, needed, he was like a Monet. He needed to develop his skills before he could actually um, paint his masterpiece. So, and, and there is a bit of evolution that takes place, and that's something I learned by actually doing this. But I, I just take you through the entire history of each of the projects and the people involved and, and the projects themselves and the decisions that were made. And, and I get to show you each one of them in their original form because I think that's what everybody needs to see and know and understand what he built. Like, we, we respect and love what things are today, but a number of them are changed quite a bit. But I just thought a, a, a very clean version of his five greatest works. And in an offhand way, it's, it's, I've always wanted, to, I just thought it was interesting just to tell all those stories. And I think it also just sort of makes it crystal clear his legacy. But it also quietly is sort of my way of saying to the World Golf Hall of Fame, all right, here's a good description of how good he was, it's time. It's time he makes it. Well, then hopefully it will be out just in time for Christmas gifts. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> Who like... Who knows? I, I, the one thing I've discovered about uh, the, the book side of things is it's far more cumbersome and, and a, a slower process than I realized. Yeah, yeah you can't just uh, file a story on your blog page and have it out there for No, no, and yeah, and... It, but it also needs to be treated, a, a, it has to be taken on differently because it, uh, a way the a book looks and feels is important. And the other thing is it, it's easy to write paragraphs and occasionally to write essays, but it's another thing to write a book that actually cohesively comes back together. So it's just another layer that I'm not used to dealing with. So that's where a good editor will help. I'm sh I'm sure it'll I'm sure it'll be brilliant. Um Ian, thanks a lot. This was uh very informative. Thanks for being so candid and and playing along with some of my questions. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. I enjoyed it very much and uh, I look forward to uh to listening to the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's fun. I've followed your work and writings for a long time. Um and it was great to talk to you. Now I will let you return to your basement and the drywalling. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Ian. Oh man, I love Ian Andrew. I almost said Ian Anderson, the lead singer for Jethro Tull. I like him too, but Ian Andrew is better on golf. Some of what he was talking about I found fascinating. That was a full meal. Not that many people in golf, specifically golf design, are willing to really go there the way Ian does. I find a lot of the people that I talk to, even some that have been on this show, are comfortable talking about certain things, and they're not comfortable talking about others. But Ian has the ability to really look at things, contextualize, analyze trends and direction, and give his opinion. And, and that's rare, and it's quite refreshing. It would be a little self-serving for me to suggest that this is a must-listen, but if you like golf course architecture and you care about the direction of the future and are interested in how we got here and where we're going, uh, this may, maybe this is a must-listen. 
I know I kind of put him on the spot a few times asking him to, I guess, name names, uh, best living architects and restoration artists and, and so forth. And I, I don't do that to be gossipy. Of course, if he wants to, you know, put names out there, he's welcome to do that. But I asked really in the interest of furthering the discussion, if golf is going to ask us to care about its future and try to get us, the players and the people who are involved with golf, on board with change and promotion and, and growing the game, it needs to be honest with us. So and having these kind of discussions with somebody like Ian Andrew, who's got a, a very unique perspective and a unique ability to, to convey his opinion and his perspective well, I mean, it's just a chance to continue to peel back the layers and to get, get to some sort of level of transparency. But he was great. I'd like to thank Ian for joining me. As always, I encourage you to visit feedtheball.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at feedtheball. Go ahead and, and please subscribe to this podcast. That would help me out a lot. Just go to iTunes, hit that subscribe button, go to Stitcher, hit that subscribe button. I'm on Google Play now. And also just as helpful, go to iTunes and uh, leave a review. Give me a star rating if you like the show. I encourage the feedback. You can leave comments on the feedtheball.com website. Thanks for tuning in. There are more episodes to come. As always, I'd like to thank the Sundogs. You can check out their music on iTunes and wherever else you get your tunage. Once again, my thanks to you. And until next time, everybody take care. Let me in.